Chasing their forgotten dreams The restless heart with tragic means The witch casts spells and breaks the seams Of what we had unto I could have loved you more, I guess I never saw this bitter end But here I sit and there you stand And we've got some when I was 13, I told the cool crowd at school I could get drugs because my mother worked in a hospital. It was the 60s and we all wanted to be rock and roll. I was lying, of course. So I stole something from the back of the medicine cabinet, reasoning if it was stuck behind the Bex and the denture cream, nobody would miss it. I was wrong. It was my father's suppositories. In the end, that didn't matter. I was going to a Christian Brothers school and we knew nothing about drugs, so we got high on the power of suggestion and threw up all afternoon. I'll start cleaning out the garage this morning. Stella has been nagging me to do it ever since I finished work, but I've always found something else to do. We don't need more shelves, she says. The grass is short enough. Everything else is done. She's right. I've painted inside and out, tightened every screw, shampooed all the carpets. There's only the garage left. Why am I avoiding it? Maybe it's one of those acts of acceptance, like playing golf during the week. The last job on a list that says you've got nothing better to do with your time. Stella thinks men aren't built for retirement, that we deal with it like death going through the five stages of grief. I told her that was crap. Stage two, she said. But she may be right. I know that I feel time passing now in a way I never did when my days were calendared. Or maybe it's something else. Well, there it is. My whole life stacked in the shadows. Ten-year-old credit card bills platform shoes and body shirts, old registration plates, a dusty exercise bike. Boxes and boxes of artefacts. Years of distractions. I have a plan. I'll start at the back, that's the beginning, and I'll work my way forward to the end. What we don't sell will go to the dump, and by the time I'm finished, there'll finally be enough room for Stella's Corolla. Will you look at that? My old school stuff. Uniforms, report cards, and books. The Oxford Book of English Poetry. I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottom of my trousers rolled. <laughs> I remember Greg Fisher asking Brother John if T.S. Eliot was an anagram of toilets and getting six of the best for having a curious mind. He just smiled and blew them off to impress us. So Brother bent him over the desk and gave him six more on the arse. Blow those off, he yelled. And we all laughed. We called Greg Fisher the Farter. 
We have lingered in the chambers of the sea, By sea-girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, Till human voices wake us, and we drown. Hm, not bad. But it isn't Dylan, is it? There it is, behind the old frames. Not bad. Here's something people at work never knew. All they ever saw was a grumpy guy ageing behind his bifocals and spreadsheets and assumed that was it. And maybe they were right at the end, but it wasn't me at the beginning. Back then I had another life planned. An accounts was just a road stop on the way through the mirror to a place where Tom Flanagan was in a band, playing lead guitar and writing songs, where he made records in New York and people whispered his name behind a cupped hand as he walked through Greenwich Village. Sometimes you end up taking the well-travelled road. When I was 16, I bought my first guitar at a garage sale. Yes, I know, circle of life. I taught myself to play and hoped it would impress girls. But I found out playing guitar didn't impress girls. Being Keith Richards and playing a guitar impressed girls. I might have given up then, except for my father. He loved music. Whenever there was a band playing at Sully's, at some point during the night, he'd make his way up to the stage and belt out a version of Carrick Fergus or Fields of Athenry while he splashed the audience with his pint. I remember when I was five thinking he had the greatest voice in the world and by the time I was fifteen wondering where it had gone. My mother used to say he's brought the words and left the tune at home. Then she'd shake her head and tell him to get off because he was embarrassing her. But none of that mattered to him. What he lacked in talent he made up for in volume and the possibility there was a real musician in the family, a son who played an instrument and had a passable voice, excited him so much he convinced Sully to let me play the pub, without even asking if I was ready for my big break. I tried to talk my way out of it, but my father was a persuasive man. So, one Friday night in the house band's dinner break, climbed up on the stage and sang a couple of Dylan songs. I didn't stop many conversations, but some people clapped and my father shouted, More! And I was good enough that Sully said I could play again next Friday and he'd give me a free steak dinner. A paid gig. I was on my way. Those boxes over there belong to my parents. Mostly rubbish. Ashtrays pinched from various pubs around town. Miniature ceramic cats. Prayer cards from the church with the sacred heart of Jesus on them. They had a print of that hanging over their bed and it used to scare me when I was small. I couldn't understand why my parents had a picture of a man with his heart ripped out and sitting on his chest on their wall. <laughs> 
I threw that out when I cleared their house, but most of the other stuff I kept. I'm not sure why. I guess it was as much a part of my life as theirs. My father could barely read or write, but he loved telling stories. He told them till the day he died. Your mother was terribly sad when we left Ireland. She spent all the time on the boat, in the cabin, crying, and when we got to Australia it was so feckin' hot she nearly melted away. She spent the whole day sitting at the kitchen table in front of a rattly old fan that just circulated the hot air. She'd groan and moan about the old country and how we may as well be dead as immigrated. Sure, as sympathetic as a man can be, after a while I needed something to shut her up. And a feller in the pub said he had just the thing, television. No one ever talks when they're watching Bonanza, he said. And as it happened he had a set ready to purchase at a very affordable price. So we did the deal and I took it home, but instead of being happy, your mother got angry. How can we afford this, Paddy? We haven't got two bob for a chop. I told her not to worry about what it cost. It fell off the back of a truck. Well, she said, you're a bigger fool than I thought. It'll never work after that. They had that television all their lives. My father believed that sitting on the couch every Saturday afternoon and watching the wide world of wrestling saved their marriage. Even after it faded to a single spot in the centre of the screen, they kept it. I found it in his shed after he died. It's here somewhere as well. I probably should throw it out, but after a while, things are no longer rubbish. Maybe I'll turn it into a garden feature. I saw something on one of those reality shows. Stella brought me a cup of coffee before and said she was going to the shops. She needs to get some diet food. I asked her what's wrong with the stuff that's in the fridge. They're past their use-by date, she said, and then got annoyed when I smirked. You could go on a diet with me. You've put on a few kilos since you finished work. I told her that I still have the body of a god. Only if you're talking about Buddha, she said. We stared at each other, the well-practised standoff that only years together can give you. And then we started laughing. Laughing so hard we both had to sit down on the boxes. When we finally settled, she looked around and asked me when I'd be finished. It's going to take a while, she nodded. You won't throw anything out that belonged to Stephen? No. No, I won't. We've been married 40 years, and we lived together for a year before that. My mother was appalled when I told her, and was petrified the priest would find out we were living in sin. She said it was my father's fault, because he encouraged me to be a musician. Drugs and sex, that's all they're interested in. The fact I was already tallying numbers in an accounting department was forgotten. The devil was doing his work every Friday night at Sully's. When I complained, my father told me to let her be. It's not about the priest. She doesn't like losing you. He was right. She carried on the same way when I moved in with a couple of friends from school. Well, don't come here looking for hot dinners and expecting me to do your laundry, she said. 
and stamped away. My father just winked and asked if I knew how to get four days' wear out of my underpants. I always knew my mother wasn't very good at affection. She shrugged off hugs and brushed cheeks. In fact, the only times I ever saw anything was when she cradled Stephen, and the week after we buried my father. I went round to mow the lawns and found her sitting on their bed, the light off and curtains drawn. I asked if she was okay, and she stared at me. I keep rolling into his spot. For a moment she looked small and lost, and I put my hand on her shoulder. But then she seemed to realise, and she shook it off. I was always telling him to lose weight. He ruined so many mattresses. My father was different. At Christmas, when she was in the kitchen doing busy work to avoid conversations, he'd be in the living room telling ghost stories to the neighbourhood kids. You see that candle over there? Every time the flame flickers, it means a dead man's walked through the room. There's ghosts everywhere, even in this house. Sure, I've heard one myself. One night, I was lying in bed, dead to the world, when this noise woke me up. Rap, rap, rap. I nearly jumped out of me feckin' skin. Rap, rap, rap. Hey, I lay there wondering if I was imagining it. But then, there it was again. Rap, rap, rap. So I got up and walked out into the hall. Rap, rap, rap. I walked down the hallway towards the junk room near the laundry. Rap, rap, rap. I opened the door and looked in. It was so dark, I couldn't see a thing. Rap, rap, rap. I walked across the room towards the cupboard at the back. Rap, rap, rap. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, it was in there. I could hear it inside the cupboard. I held my breath and slowly turned the handle. The door opened, and you know what I found? No? No? The Christmas wrapping paper. He needed people around him, and I realise now that chatter smothered the noise from his memories. My mother needed the silence. Oh, my love, I was wrong. You've left me no doubt that I am coming home. New York, I was wrong. You've left me no doubt that I am coming home. That's my old cassette player. I found it buried in a box full of tapes, some pirated albums or songs from the radio, and a couple of me playing at Sully's. I played there most Friday nights for five years. The funny thing is, when I started, I had no ambition. I just liked the steak dinners. But applause, even applause pumped by pints of Guinness, is addictive. 
You sit on the stage with a microphone that gives your voice authority and a spotlight that singles you out. And every now and then someone stops talking and listens. There's nothing else like that. After a while I started writing a few songs and slipping them in between Dylan and Lennon. Mostly people didn't notice. It was just background music for their stories. But that didn't matter. I still called myself a musician when people asked what I did. No mention of budget reports or balance sheets. And I wore fashionably ruined clothes and granny glasses. I even grew a pencil-thin moustache, which I thought gave me a look. Though when my father saw it, he just said, Those like yours, I wouldn't underline it, son. After a couple of months... Sally started giving me a few bucks on top of the dinner and even wrote my name on the events board. few guys I knew at school would come along sometimes with their girlfriends. They were usually drunk by the time I got on stage and they chanted, Tommy, 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 between songs. Some of them would make their way up to the microphone and shout choruses they got wrong. I'll never leave your pizza burning. No one really noticed, and Sally didn't care if they kept buying drinks. One night, a guy called Larry, a smart-ass I hated at school, came along and brought a date. That was the first time I saw Stella. Larry could barely sit straight by the time I came on, but he still had enough energy to make it up to the house band's drum kit and start bashing. I assume in his head there was some beat, so he kept at it, loud enough to bring the real drummer in from the beer garden. I'm not sure what annoyed him more, that his drums were being abused or that smoking a quality joint had been interrupted. He charged the stage, grabbed Larry and started shaking him, which wasn't the best move on a guy who'd been drinking all night on top of a ham and pineapple pizza. So Larry threw up on the drummer, who immediately reciprocated. The irony of drummers vomiting on each other wasn't lost on the crowd and they started cheering, but it was too much for Sully, who'd never heard of Keith Moon. He threw them both out and told me that I'd have to fill in for the band. I said I didn't know that many songs. Just sing them again, this mob's too pissed to notice. I started playing and when I looked down I saw Stella sitting at the table. Her date was gone, but she'd stayed. This is a bigger job than I thought. There are boxes of books back there that I bought thinking I was buying the time to read them. There are thousands of slides. Snapshots taken with a plastic Kodak camera and a flash cube. What do I do with those? 
Mostly they are records of the inconsequential, but the still moments from our lives. Look at this one. My first car, the second-hand Mini I bought on my credit card that leaked buckets of oil and had holes in the floor big enough to put my foot through. I bought it without telling my father, who fancied himself a natural genius in mechanics. When I brought it home, he lifted the hood and had me kick over the motor. I revved while he tapped and wiggled, and when the examination was finished, I asked what he thought. It's fucked, he said, and lowered the hood like the lid of a coffin. Still, knowing nothing about pistons and compression, I was reassured by the gargled roar of the engine and the fact that it had enough energy to turn the wheels as long as the hill wasn't too steep. I used it to pick Stella up for our first date. There's a photo of that here somewhere as well. If I posted it up on Facebook now, everyone would comment that we're a lovely couple or that it was meant to be. Of course, it was taken early in the night and the smiles hide the later disaster of two virgins wrestling with their clothes and cramping up in the back seat of a Mini. I had great affection for that car but I was the only one. When I traded it in, I asked what it was worth, and the salesman said, How much does it weigh? My next car was a Ford panel van, more practical for moving my guitar and amplifier. More practical for other things as well, Stella said. I kept it for three years, and every day I imagined tossing in the accounts and budget reports, packing it up and both of us heading down the highway to the big city where I'd play clubs and pubs until I made it. And I got close. One day my boss told me I was the best finance clerk he'd ever had and offered me a promotion. I was trapped in a cliché. The musician who had a choice, the money or the dream. I knew what I had to do. But that night... Stella told me she was pregnant. The cliché won. I'm breaking through black clouds, the walls of blue sky that is in my soul that I cannot find. Now we have no I can hear Stella making the dinner. The kitchen is right above me and the frustrated thumping across the floor is a sure sign she's burnt something. Cooking has never been a passion for her and I burn water. She'll call me soon enough and that'll be it for the day. I've managed to fill the trash pack and what's not going to the tip is in the carport ready for Saturday morning garage sale. 
The guitar is over there in no man's land, waiting for a decision on its fate. We all have different ideas about our lives when we're young. You start out wanting to be a train driver when you're five, and move on to a musician when you're twenty-one. Sometimes those things happen, sometimes they don't. When I told my father that I was getting married and that I'd taken the promotion, he said, Well, life's like that, son. Gets in the way of the things you want to do. I told him that sounded like something Lennon had said, and he smiled the way he did when he told an old joke. Is that the Russian fella? Though it was going to be a rush to the altar, I didn't feel like I was being forced into marrying Stella. We never talked about it, but I always assumed we'd do it one day, just like I assumed we'd buy a house and have children playing in the yard. I hadn't given much thought to how that would all fit into the life of a pub singer, but that didn't really matter then. Until she told me we were going to have a baby, all futures were possible. There's a slide somewhere of the day we moved into our first house. The worst place on the best street. Weatherboard at the front with a small brick extension where an indoor toilet had replaced the outhouse. We're standing at the front door. It's a stinking hot day and Stella is five months pregnant but she's still smiling. My father took the photo while my mother sat in the car fuming because we'd got married in a park instead of a church and Stella had worn white. After the shutter clicked I turned the key and opened the door. We looked at each other for a moment as if there was still a decision to be made. Then we stepped across the threshold into domesticity. I've managed to get a mortgage on the basis of my promotion and a reference from my boss that I had great potential. My father gave me his old Victor mower and I bought some cheap tools at the markets that I used to tighten loose hinges and fix squeaky floorboards. We got some surplus paint to do up the front room as a nursery. But we'd only covered one wall with ocean blue when Stephen arrived two months early. He was small and healthy, but the delivery almost killed Stella, and she lost any chance of ever having another child. I wish I'd seen him being born, but you didn't do things like that back then. You waited for your son to be delivered to you, washed and wrapped like something straight off a production line. I'd assume there'd be an instant bond, something explosive, because we were father and son. But I just looked at him and then looked across at my mother, confused about what I should do next. She took him out of my arms, and my father rubbed a rough fingertip across his cheek. He looks like my da. My mother pulled away, saying he doesn't look like anybody yet. And she sat down and whispered things in his ear, so softly only he could hear. I haven't touched those boxes yet. They've been tucked away in that corner for years. The cardboard is chewed on the bottom and the masking tape is lifted. I went to pick one up before, but stopped when I saw a furry paw and a dull plastic eye staring back at me. Yet.
Everyone told me that having a baby cost a fortune, so my reflex was to work harder, to take as much overtime as I could and build up the bank account. I left at seven in the morning and came home after dark. Stella would ask what my day had been like and I'd say, busy. Then we'd talk about Stephen, mostly how well his bowels worked, before we sat down to sausages or rissoles. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The script never changed. But on Friday there was Sully's and for a couple of hours I was someone with a different life. Stella came along every now and then, when my mother agreed to babysit, but mostly she stayed at home. It was only when Stephen began to walk I finally saw the possibilities of fatherhood. He'd stagger across the room and fall in my lap, laughing, and I started to imagine futures where we'd be working on some project in the shed or playing backyard cricket. I told Stella he was old enough to watch me sing, and the first night he came he ran onto the stage, tripped over the amp cord, and started to cry. I picked him up and said, This is my boy! It was the loudest applause I'd ever had. While we conjure up a brighter day Play the games we play, I still tremble Like a child lost in the dark While we conjure up a brighter day Play the games we play, I still tremble Like a child lost in the dark While we conjure up a brighter day Play the games we play, I still tremble Like a child lost in the dark I was working late when my father called. It was close to the end of the financial year and the budget reports were due. You've got to come home, son. Something's happened. The driver was 18 years old. She wasn't drunk. She wasn't speeding. She was a pea-plater who lost control on the corner and panicked. She hit the accelerator instead of the brake and crashed through the fence, through the roses, through the weatherboard wall. I once worked it out it took less than ten seconds. The doctor said he died instantly. He said it like that was a good thing. But how can it be? How can life being so fragile that one moment you are here and the next you're gone, be a good thing. We couldn't stay in the house, of course, so we moved in with my parents while it was being rebuilt and put on the market. They were very kind, especially my mother, and for the first time I saw glimpses of the girl my father married. For months she and Stella sat at the kitchen table talking about nothing, 
until they started to talk about something. And when Stella began to cry, my mother would reach across and squeeze her hands. She never mentioned God or heaven or any of that stuff they feed you to make you believe the end isn't the end, though I'm sure she was thinking it. She just kept squeezing her hands. I worked. I left early and came home late, did overtime when I didn't need to. I hid in spreadsheets and filled my head with numbers, debits and credits and carry-forwards. There wasn't room for anything else even music. I put the guitar away, hid it in the shadows along with the boxes of teddy bears and rattles and told Sully I was too busy at work. No one tried to change my mind, not even my father. Some marriages don't survive the pain, maybe most of them, but ours did. Sure it was hard at first, Stella used to get up in the middle of the night because she thought she heard a baby crying and I'd find her sitting on the couch with his clothes around her. And I had dreams. I woke up sweating and could hear my heart pounding but I only remembered bits of them and in a few minutes they faded completely. All that was left was the feeling that something was missing. Time passed, and after a while it was okay. Over months and years we settled into a rhythm that kept us moving forward. I climbed the ladder to the executive suite, and Stella had her projects. Classes on everything, working at a community centre, joining a flash choir that sang I Want to Hold Your Hand in the food court. We bought dogs, and we travelled. There are boxes of Buddhas and Eiffel Towers and fridge magnets in the carport that'll go for 20 cents each. We moved through three houses, each a little bigger, and when we finally settled into this one we renovated and then renovated again. And all that time we didn't look back. If there were any memories for us, they were about beginnings. The day we brought him home from the hospital the first smile, the first step. It was never about the end. They'll tell you that isn't good, that you should talk about it. But our way worked for us, and we've been happy enough. The pain is a dull ache that gets a little sharper at Christmas and birthdays. I put off retirement for years, till long after we'd had enough to live comfortably, but they sold the company and the new owners brought in a management team that valued youthful energy over experience. I found myself always being the guy who argues at meetings and then sits in the uncomfortable silence that follows his comments. I took the offer when it was made and smiled at the awkward jokes people who didn't really know me told at the farewell lunch. And when it was over, HR took my keys and credit card and I went home. I put the box of bits from my office in the garage. It's over there. The photos, the coffee mugs, the Dylan poster that always hung on the wall behind my desk. May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the lights surrounding you. 
May you be forever young. Here's a funny story. I had one hit. It was the only song I wrote that anyone ever requested. It was about moving on. My father loved it and my mother asked me to sing it at his funeral. But I couldn't. Not then. That's irony, isn't it? When Stella saw the guitar, she said I should start playing again. She'd been saying that for years, saying that I looked happy when I was on the stage. Usually I just shrug it off and say I'm too busy. But that doesn't really work anymore, does it? Sully sold the place years ago, and now it's one of those boutique pubs. No steak dinners, all nouveau cuisine what my father called an excuse to put small portions on big plates. But there is an open mic night. Every Friday. That's the signal. Dinner's ready. Well, I'll be back tomorrow. It's a bigger job than I thought, but I've said that already, haven't I? Still, I suppose it's the same for everyone. The longer you live, the more you collect, until you're finally caught between the past and the future, wondering which way to turn. Original music by Anthony and David Gill, performed and directed by Tony Turner. battles with